a spring series, a new series that we just start today called um, This Is Us. Now, we want to explore the, the mission, the vision, the values, and the distinctives of, of who we are here at Sherwood Oaks. That's why we're calling it This Is Us. This is who we are. We sort of borrowed the title from the hit NBC TV series by the same name. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I have not followed the series, but the pilot episode was one that truly grabbed my attention. In the show, uh, every, every show, there are moments where it goes back and picks up stories from the past, and then it comes back to the present, and then sometimes they talk about their dreams of the future. You see, the way the storyline is woven between the past and the present, it's quite intriguing to watch. And it's a vivid reminder, it is a vivid reminder that the present and the future cannot be disconnected from the past. Who we are today has a lot to do with who we were yesterday. And who we will be in the future has a lot to do when you take all of that into perspective. You see, I believe that the present and the future of the church family is very much the same. We cannot separate who we are as a church family today from who we were in the past and who we will be tomorrow. And when you stop and think about it, the past is immaterial if we don't continue to move forward. See, it works both ways. It's the past connected to tomorrow that makes such a difference. Back in January, the TV series had a bad fire. It was the infamous Crock-Pot episode, if you, if you read about that. And I thought, we had a fire too as a church family. September 17th, 1991, back at the Winslow Road facility, half of the destruction, at least, if not two-thirds, was destroyed by fire. And I'm thinking, you know what? That memory helped shape who we are today. Every experience in the life of a family or in the life of a church family shapes us who we are. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at our mission statement and our values as we look into the future. I think it's going to be fun. I think it'll be interesting. But it is really important that all of us understand who we are and where we're headed. So today we're going to begin with our mission statement. Now, whenever I hear that theme song. I remember back to when I was a teenager and the minute that song started to play, I knew that there was a new episode of Mission Impossible that was about to air. Between, and some of you are thinking, you mean the movies? No, I mean the TV series. Back from 66 to 73 when Peter Graves starred as the leader of this covert black ops government secure kind of place that sent out people all around the world to save the world in 50 minutes or less every week. You know what I mean? And, and the unique thing about Mission Impossible was that the team that was going out to save the world always got their instructions off of a tape, a tape recorder. And it would begin something like this. Your mission should you choose to accept it. And then it would lay out the parameters of the mission. And then when it was done, the tape would self-destruct with smoke and sparks and fire and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I look at that and I think, you know, God gives us the same kind of a, an option. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, you know, and our mission in the church is not covert. It's not black ops. It's very much out in the open. It's not government sponsored and it's not funded by tax dollars. What's more, it is totally voluntary. You are here because you want to be here. Nobody is forcing you to be here. 
You're here as a part of your life committed to Jesus Christ. But don't panic just because the mission is spelled out in your bulletin. It will not self-destruct once you have read that. So if you want to read it out of the bulletin, fine. If you want to read it out on the screen, fine. But I want us to read out loud this mission statement. All right, you ready? People helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. Let's read it again. I want this to sink in. People helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. Now, before we move farther into that statement, let's back up and take a look at the past. When we come to mission, all right, there are a lot of words that float around out there, and everybody uses them in different ways. Sometimes we use them interchangeably as if they mean the same thing, and they don't. You got the word mission, and you got the word vision, and you've got the word purpose, and all that gets really muddy at times because we don't define what we mean by those words. So, this morning, that, so that we're all on the same page, for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to define our mission statement as a purpose statement. What is our purpose as the church under the leadership of Jesus Christ? Now, you know, some mission statements uh, are are all over the map. There's some cartoons. I I got a kick out of some of these. Uh, some, Some are quite simple, like this one. This is a corporate mission statement. Make money. That's it. You know, whatever it takes. Some of them are are just way overwhelming. (laughs) Don't you feel that way sometimes? You know, forget all the words. Our mission is to survive because everything around us is so overwhelming. This is my favorite. Some of them just seem to be obvious. You don't need a mission statement. If at first you don't succeed, you don't succeed. (laughs) You know, when you're in a skydiving school, that's pretty important, you know. So you may be saying, okay, I'm on a mission to clean out the garage. Well, that sort of fits all three of these thoughts. It's simple. It's overwhelming and probably obvious to everybody who has seen your grudge. So mission statements vary and they're all over the map. And, you, and, and some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we go too far into this, didn't Jesus already give us a mission statement? I mean, he spelled that out pretty clear. And you're right. There is a universal mission or purpose statement for the church that should be the priority of every congregation regardless of the name on the sign or the denominational banner over it. We call it today the Great Commission and we need to make sure it doesn't become the Great Omission. These words of Jesus we find right before he leaves to go home to the Father. Matthew 28. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's the command, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely or truly I am with you always to the very end of the age. So in other words, the purpose of the church is to make disciples and a disciple is a fully devoted follower of Jesus and we're to do this throughout the world. And then Jesus adds, he said, you know, this is, there are some components to this. When you make disciples, you must bring them to a point of faith. You must give them the message so that they can be converted. That's the baptism part here. But you don't just leave them there, standing there wet. You begin to teach them and you teach them for the rest of their life. That is the growth part. And then Jesus adds this, knowing how we are, you know, under the risk of us growing weary, in a good work. Jesus, don't, don't give up. 
because I promise I will be with you to the very end of the age. Now, folks, this is not mission impossible. It's very challenging. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's beyond our comfort zone, but it's not mission impossible. By the grace of God and with the promise of Jesus Christ, it is mission possible, and we should grab hold of it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you say, okay, then, all right, if that's the mission of the church universal, then why do we need our own mission statement or purpose statement? Are we trying to improve on what Jesus said? And the answer to that is absolutely not. The reason for a specific statement for this congregation is to help us here identify how we will stay true to what the Lord expects us. How we describe our 21st century work of fulfilling this first century purpose statement. And this is where a picture really helps. You know, you can read words, but sometimes it's nice to have a picture. Words are to describe a picture, but you need enough of them to paint a good picture. For instance, if I just say he was tall with a penetrating look, do you see this in your mind? Or do you see this in your mind? You see, there's not enough words there to, to, to draw an adequate picture. Both are tall. Both have penetrating looks. <laughs> but the end result is a far cry from the other. That's where the concept of vision helps. A well-defined vision gives us clarity and frames in the future. John Maxwell writes this. He said, vision is the gateway to one's destiny. It is the roadmap to one's destination. The picture of your purpose. Without vision, you will find yourself going nowhere. So the words of a mission ought to create a vision in our mind, a picture of where we are headed. <clears throat> and since a triangle is the most stable of all geometric figures, there are three sides to this mission statement which give it stability for our future. Here, here's the first part of the mission. It breaks down real easy. In our purpose statement, this is what it begins with. People helping people. People helping people. This is who we are. Okay? This is who we are. The phrase is simple, but it is not simplistic. This is a reminder of how we have viewed ourselves in the past, how we see ourselves right now, and how I hope we will always see ourselves as a congregation. We are a team of ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. <clears throat> now, I will often get this question. Somebody will say, how many ministers are at Sherwood Oaks Christian Church? I know what they're asking. They want to know how many of us who do ministry for a career are here on staff. And so I will give them that number, but it's never the right answer. It's what they want, but it's not the right answer to the question. How many ministers do you have at Sherwood Oaks? The real answer to that is about 5,000. You see, in any 13-week period of time, there are about 5,000 people that circulate through this church family because nobody is ever here at the same time except maybe at Easter, which is why our, our attendance last week was about 50, close to 5,100. You see, we all try to come together on, on that day. About 5,000 people call this their church home. And so the next time somebody asks you that question, you might just answer, about 5,000. And uh, you might get an interesting reaction, but it will be the truth. And did you notice what the statement doesn't say? 
It says people helping people. It doesn't say elders helping people. It doesn't say church staff helping people. It doesn't say seminary trained helping people. It doesn't say the spiritually mature helping people. It doesn't say the ordained to ministry helping people. It simply says we are all helping one another. We are all people helping one another. Sometimes folks will come to me and ask me to pray about something or someone in their life. And then they may add this. Would you pray because you have a, a direct line to the Father? Now, I know what they're asking. And I know they're probably saying it in front of me and we laugh. But there, there, there's a part of me that wonders, do they really believe that, that somehow... Because I've had the privilege of living my life and spending my career in ministry, that I have a direct line that somehow God picks up when I pray quicker on the other end than when you pray. If you, if you even think that's remotely true, you're way off base. There is no hierarchy here, people. There is no somebody is really closer to God, so therefore his prayers are going to be heard. I'm telling you, we are people together who when we pray, God hears us. Your prayers are just as effective and able as my prayers because we are people helping people. I've often said, you see, God, God, God loves ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. I want you to know, I wasn't born with a Bible in one hand and this three-ring binder in the other. Okay, that's just not the way I came into this world. I grew up as an ordinary kid in southern Indiana. I never entertained the thought of ministry until I was a sophomore in high school. Being a minister was the farthest thing from my mind. When Elsie and I accepted the ministry here in January of 1981, many would have described this congregation as an ordinary congregation who was not meeting their budget at the time. A fact I did not know until I'd already signed on the dotted line. And I have often said that had I known what God was going to do with the 80 people that we started with and what it would be today, I wouldn't have come. I wouldn't have come because I'd have been too scared. I've been too frightened about the prospect. I, I am ever so grateful that God does not let us know what the immediate future holds because I would have missed the experience and the journey of a lifetime if I had not been here. But you see, something so extraordinary is accomplished by God. And God is just, well, he just loves ordinary people. The people we found here were, were just ordinary people people. But they served an extraordinary God, and they believed that they wanted more than anything else for this congregation to survive, to make a difference in this world for the gospel. And that's what the folks of this congregation have been doing ever since. And whether you've been here for four decades or you've been here for four days, that's who we are. We are ordinary people helping ordinary people. You see, God takes great joy in using the ordinary and then empowering them and enabling them to accomplish his will. All you have to do is look back at the hand-picked 12 that Jesus chose. You got Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were commercial fishermen. 
Okay, so, you know, all right. And then you have another Simon that's one of the disciples. And his nickname is Simon the Zealot because he was a part of a group that practiced guerrilla warfare to assassinate Romans and any Jewish person that served the Romans. Got the picture? And then you have a guy by the name of Matthew who's one of the disciples who's a turncoat Jewish person who is now serving the Roman government as a tax collector. This is the very kind of guy that Simon was supposed to assassinate. This is oil and water, folks. And the other guys who are disciples, they don't even make a list of who's who in Galilee. They're just ordinary guys. The only one from Judea was a man by the name of Judas Iscariot. And except for him, all the rest remained faithful until death. God took an ordinary group of men and turned this world inside out when they preached the hope of the gospel of Jesus. The book of Ephesians reminds us that we all have jobs to do in the kingdom. We don't have ranks, we have jobs. And those roles, those jobs, have a divine purpose. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ. Now, if that isn't a description of people helping people, I don't know what is. We're to be preparing one another to serve. We're to be helping one another mature. We're to be teaching one another to grow. Author Henry Blackaby wrote this. He said, God is not adding you to our church accidentally. If God is adding you to our body, he wants to do something through your life to help make us become more complete. And folks, if we ever cease being people helping people, we're going to lose touch with our past. And we will languish in our quest for tomorrow. People helping people. That's who we are. But the next phrase, grow generations of, this is how we want to act. This is how we want to act. Now, both of the main words of this phrase are important. Grow. Growing spiritually is a lifelong process. And it's different than our physical growth. You know, when, we, when we talk about the, the prospects of a human, human lifespan, we go through all different kinds of phases. Uh, once we leave home, we begin a new phase of life. And then we get married, we start a family, adjust to an empty nest, discover the joy of grandparenting, settle into retirement. Each one of those is a new and different phase of life. And you go through them and you see that you're progressing to some kind of an end point that sort of, that sort of looks downhill, if we're honest with it, Right? I mean, when you, when you look past years of retirement, it, it, you know, things don't look too bright from a physical standpoint of view. One aging gentleman described his new phase of life in these terms. He said, I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replacement, new knees, fought prostate cancer and diabetes. I'm half blind, can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine, take 40 different medications that make me dizzy, winded, and subject to blackouts. I have bouts with dementia, poor circulation, and I can hardly feel my hands and feet anymore. I can't remember if I'm 85 or 92. I've lost all my friends, but thank God I still have my driver's license. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, as, as, the, as our lives progress, it, it sort of 
goes downhill in that way. But thankfully, our spiritual growth in life does not mimic the physical decline. It mimics more of the, tr- of the growth of a tree. A small, spindly sapling, you see, is far more in danger of being destroyed, being stepped on, being crushed, being knocked over, being cut, than a mature tree of majestic size. Maybe you've seen the giant sequoias of California. Some of them tower more than 280 feet into the air. They are 113 feet in circumference, some of them, and they are estimated to be as much as 2,500 years old. If they are that old, do you realize they were standing when Jesus Christ walked in the area of Judea? You see, a tree, as long as it grows, it lives. As long as it lives, it grows. A static tree is a dying tree. A static Christian is a dying Christian. We must help one another grow, and not just for a period of time, but for as long as we have breath. So that when we draw our last breath, spiritually, we look more like the giant sequoias than the aging, frail human bodies that we wear. Now, my favorite word in this purpose statement is generations. Generations. When I began in ministry, I was a young buck. I was part of the up-and-coming generation. I knew what the new generation needed. I'm no longer a young buck. I'm no longer part of the up-and-coming generation. But I will tell you one thing that hasn't changed in my heart through the years. And that is my desire that the church be relevant for all generations, but especially, but especially for the future generations, the spiritual saplings of today who are so vulnerable. Paul the Apostle writes to the young buck Timothy in what is most likely Paul's last letter before his death. And he says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then listen to this. He says, And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will then be qualified to teach others. Do you know what Paul is saying here? He said, Timothy, I've given you everything that I know about the gospel of Christ. Now I want you to take what I've given you and give it to other reliable people who then in turn will give it to other reliable people in the next generation who then in turn will give it to other reliable people in the next generation. Do you understand what he's saying? This is a continual action. Wow. Do you get the picture? Why why are you here this morning? Who is the first person to speak into your life about Jesus Christ? Who was the one who helped you make a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Why are you here? Somebody told you. Who was it? Does the name Edward Kimball ring a bell? Probably not. Didn't to me. He was a Sunday school teacher who taught teenage Boys, hyper teenage boys. And one in particular just didn't seem to get what he was trying to teach. So Mr. Kimball didn't give up, worked with that boy, and eventually that boy, Dwight L. Moody, gave his life to Christ and became a preacher and literally, literally reached thousands of people on two different continents for Christ. Mr. Moody established the college in Chicago that bears his name to this day, Moody Bible Institute. What about the name Mordecai Ham? Anybody remember that one? He was a scholarly, dignified preacher who was doing a revival in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. 
A reluctant young man attended one night at the invitation of guests. He didn't really want to go, but he didn't really want to turn down. So he went and found it sort of intriguing. Decided to go back the next night and listen again. And at the end of that service, a young Billy Graham walked forward and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Who doesn't know Billy Graham? Who even remembers Mordecai Ham? And you say, well, that's really two very interesting unrelated stories. They're really interesting stories, but they're not unrelated. Are you ready for this? Mordecai Ham was converted under the preaching of the famous baseball player turned preacher Billy Sunday, who came to Christ under the preaching of the famous evangelist Wilbur Chapman, whose heart was touched by the preaching of none other than Dwight L. Moody, and we are right back in Edward Kimball's Sunday school class. Do you see this? Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Out of this one man's Sunday school class of teenage boys bursts forth the opportunity of great harvest in the kingdom of God. Only in heaven will we know the impact of what we do for the generations to come. You see, God uses an ordinary man like Edward Kimball in an extraordinary way for the kingdom of God into a massive harvest that we can't even begin to measure. Two Sundays ago, our children's choir was up here on the platform, and while we sang on Palm Sunday, <laughs> the, the wee ones came down the, the aisles with their palm branches. I just love that when, when I see our kids come down the aisle. And I look at those tiny little faces, those trusting, innocent little faces, and this is what I believe. It is for them that I want this church to be as strong and faithful as we possibly can be. You see, they will have more faith challenges than I have had. It will be more difficult for them to stay the course of the Christian faith through college than it was for those of us who are in this room. The church must mentor and teach and grow these kids, these spindly saplings who are so vulnerable so that they can pass the gospel on to the generations that we will never live to see. And we have so much to learn from them. I hope I have something to offer them, but I know I have so much to gain from them. That's why every generation matters. Recently, our oldest grandson, Landon, our, our six-year-old grandson, wanted to watch the cartoon Paw Patrol. And so we sat down on the couch, and I took the remote in my hand and began to think, okay, what network is that, and then what channel is that going to be? You know, you got to remember, I grew up with a black and white television set that had three channels, that we got three channels, and the closest thing we had to a remote was my hand, you know, clicking the channel knobs. But our cable provider today has given us a remote that you can talk to that's voice activated. And so here I sit with this remote in my hand. I'm thinking, well, what network is that? What channel is that? And Landon, who who, bless his little heart, has a little bit of a dutchy voice that is so endearing to me, holds out his hand and says, here, doll. And so I handed him the rope, pushes the button and said, Paw Patrol. <laughs> and instantly, Paw Patrol is on the screen. <laughs> he hands the remote back to me with a look that only a six-year-old can give. It was a mix of pity and utter disbelief in my ineptness. <laughs> An hour later, I caught him checking into nursing homes here in the local area for me. Do you get how important this is? Every generation matters. But the most vulnerable is the spiritual 
vulnerability of the youngest among us. People, nobody is going to take away my faith at this point in my life. Nobody. Oh, but this generation, they're not locked in yet. It's not in their hearts just yet. And oh, we need to be everything that we can be so that they will find Jesus Christ. Last part of this triangle is Christ-led influencers. That's what we want to accomplish. People helping people, that's who we are. Generations, growing generations of. That's how we want to act. Christ-led influencers. That's what we want to accomplish. Our purpose is to create a positive influence in this world. I'm here to tell you, you will influence. You will be an influencer. The only question is, what kind of an influencer will you be? We want to be Christ-led influencers. Jesus said, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. We are to be out in this world making a difference for him. And this is something every one of us can do. Even if it's just in our home, our neighborhood, our communities, our extended global family. We can all do this. And trust me, you'll be an influencer. Just what kind will you be? True leadership is influencing. Leading is influencing. Influencing is leading. In a world that has abandoned God, we need to shed light on the darkest paths so that people can see where to focus their attention on God once again. We have a big job ahead of us to be Christ-led influencers. But, but if we don't, who will? That, that's not the responsibility of any government agency I know of. It's not the responsibility of the corporations that I'm familiar with. It's not the responsibility of any kind of college or university. What we want is what only the church can accomplish. That we become Christ-led influencers for all generations everywhere. Now, why worry about all this? Because we have a message of hope that the world desperately needs. We cannot, we must not hoard this message. Why do you think we invested so much time and energy into the one life? Every one of us can be an influencer. We each need a one life to help that person find Jesus Christ in us. And when we do that, it puts wings on our mission statement, our purpose statement. I'll be honest with you. <clears throat> there are days in my life, not often, but enough, when I wonder if what I do really makes a difference. Is it important? Is the hope of the gospel really the good news that the world needs? I had something happen last week that answered that question for me. Um, <clears throat> last Saturday evening was our first service for, for Easter here. And it was the same time that the um, IU women's basketball team was playing in the championship of the WNIT. And I really, really would have liked to have been at that game. But, of course, I couldn't. So, Elsie and I watched the first half on TV. And then I set the recorder. I was going to record the rest of the game and come home. And we were going to watch how it all came out. And <laughs> here at church, I accidentally found out how the game had gone. I was, I was just disappointed for a minute, but it, but it turned out to be the best thing ever. We went home, sat down on the couch. I, hit, I didn't tell Elsie that I knew, okay? And so we're watching the game, and we get into the third quarter, and IU drops behind. 
And Elsie's saying, oh, no. Oh this, oh, this is not good. This doesn't look good. I'm sitting on the end of the couch just smiling. She doesn't know. I know. I, I'm not stressed. I'm not anxious. I'm really enjoying the game. You know why? Because I knew who won at the end of the game. I knew they were going to come back. Didn't know how they were going to come back. I just knew they were going to come back and they were going to take home the trophy. And then, then it hit me. The world we live in is stressed and they're frustrated and they're anxious and they're bitter and they're mad because they don't know how all these things work together and they can't see any farther than the hand in front of their face and they don't know what the ultimate goal is. But those of us who know Jesus Christ know. But the rest of the story has already been told. We don't know the immediate future. Don't know how we're going to get there. But Jesus has said, you're victorious in me. When it comes to the end, you're all going to be victorious. That's why the world needs this message. That's why we need to be faithful to helping communicate the gospel. The world needs to know that only in Christ does the end have security, have a promise of victory. In Him, we're winners. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.